I'm Lisa Bontesumi, and this is the Ath Mindset podcast series on sports epreneur. This podcast series is a space for conversations with athletes, coaches, practitioners, and stakeholders in sports. And it's where those individuals share their perspectives, experiences, and thoughts on mental health in sports. Eric Kazimoff of Sports Epreneur is generously hosting the Ath Mindset podcast series on his platform as he deeply believes that these conversations are essential and deserve to be prioritized. This is the Ath Mindset podcast series on Sports Epreneur. Sports Epreneur, the content platform where sports, entrepreneurship, and mental health collide. If you are looking to start a podcast or create original content, you have to talk with the team at Sports Epreneur. I work with them and I vouch for them. It's that simple. Go to sportse.io to learn more. Well, Chris, thanks for taking the time to be with me today. You know, I've been looking forward to it. I want to just say welcome. Chris, introduce yourself. I'm going to do a little bit different today. Introduce yourself to the folks listening. Yeah. So my name is Chris Amuller, originally from Germany, hence why I sound a little funny. I was a tennis player for the Huskers, joined them in 2008. I did my undergraduate degrees in marketing and in econ at the University of Nebraska. Went on to do my MBA and then started a company, started FanWord in 2017. Awesome. I love it when I ask people, I'm going to do this more, ask them to introduce themselves because there's so many questions that come of it. So how old were you when you came to the United States from Germany and under what circumstances? So 2008 was my freshman year. So I must have just turned 20. In Germany, we had one more year of high school and then also a mandatory either military service or community service year after high school. So I was a bit older when I joined. And truthfully, I mean, I never really considered being a college athlete in the U.S., quite frankly, because I wasn't aware of it. It's just not something that I was really educated on. And then I just got a phone call one day from the assistant coach here at Nebraska. Initially, actually pretty much said, hey, thank you, but no, this isn't for me. And then within two weeks or so, I got like six or seven other offers from other institutions. And I was like, hmm, maybe I should look into this a little bit more, learn more about the industry. I kind of fell in love with it already before ever stepping foot on U.S. soil. And then, yeah, I clearly fell even more in love with it. This was 14 years ago, roughly, or 13 and a half years ago, and I'm still here. So that's kind of how it all started. That's interesting. I'm sure it has a lot of influence and impact on founding the company FanWord and what it stands for and what it is. I mean, a lot of us pull from our own experiences to create platforms for ourselves to express ourselves, but also to help people who are in our similar situations. So tell me, what is FanWord? Yeah, so FanWord is an athlete branding and storytelling company. So we're all about producing products and services, building solutions that help athletes build, protect, and monetize their personal brands. Awesome. And did you have this before NIL was a thing? Mm -hmm. Or you did? That's awesome. So I started a company in 2017 and we went through a pivot halfway through 2018 and then had our first partner in 2018 at the end of 2018. So yes, definitely started this before NIL ever became a thing. And at the time, I really started a company to help particularly athletes that weren't always in the spotlight, earning that spotlight and getting a little bit more recognition for who they were 
not just as athletes, but also kind of as human beings. That's really what kind of sparked the passion and shedding a light on, on some of their out of sports accomplishments and stories and, and experiences. And was a big fan of the Players Tribune, the media platform, and just kind of as an initial thought, wanted to replicate that on the collegiate level where we would help athletes, student athletes, uh, tell their stories. And when I say I was driven by helping some of those athletes, lesser known athletes, I want to be clear that this was never a, I don't care about football athletes, I don't care about basketball, I don't care about high profile athletes kind of thing. It was more so that I just wanted to build something that was inclusive, that would add value, not just for the high profile athletes, but also you know, for them, obviously, but also then for Again, the athletes that weren't always in the spotlight. And that's really something that's been part of our DNA from the get-go. And we may not have figured out at first how we could do that until we pivoted in 2018. And to this day, we keep iterating, right? But the core, the DNA, I guess, of our company of wanting to help athletes kind of win outside of sports and helping them really now maximize their NIL opportunities, which come from branding and storytelling and all that, has never really changed. It's just a matter of how we pursue it that has changed. But yeah, that's kind of how it all kicked off for us. No, that's awesome. I love that you are accessible to the not-so-big-time athlete, that they have a lot of resources and a lot of people coming to them with opportunities. Like You build a platform and continue to build on it, that it's accessible for someone who might not have that opportunity otherwise. So let's just break down for those people who don't know, what is NIL? Yeah, so NIL stands for name, image, and likeness. And probably the easiest way to kind of think about it is brand, personal brand. So in other words, it's pretty much a new industry that uh, sprung up, officially started uh, July of last year, that now allows college athletes, student athletes to make money off their name, image, and likeness for the first time ever, really. And we're starting to see it in the high school space happening now as well. But yeah, college sports started a little over seven months ago. And yeah. Yeah. It's become complex just in the short time that it's been around. What are the benefits to the collegiate athlete participating in NIL? I think the most obvious one is the financial benefit, right? Like if you now as an athlete can, for instance, endorse a company's product or host your own football camp or, or coaching lessons or start your own companies or you know do stuff like that, the number one thing people think of when they think of NIL or talk about NIL is the financial benefit. So that's definitely one. And I think when it comes to that, you have to really differentiate from the get-go. When you learn about it or read about NIL in the media, you learn about the Power 5 quarterback getting a free car or, or signing a six-figure deal. That is less than 1% of athletes that are impacted by those types of deals. But if you can help the tennis player, the track athlete, the soccer player, the wrestler make a couple hundred dollars each month or a couple thousand dollars each year or get free products and free services valued at you know, multiple hundred or thousands of dollars, that goes a very, very long ways for a lot of people. And it's just something that unfortunately isn't talked about enough, but makes a huge impact. So all that being said, financially, definitely one of the biggest perks. But personally, what really excites me too is just the entire conversation. Like we start putting a lot more emphasis on the importance of brand development. 
and helping an 18-year-old or a 19-year-old learning to focus more on that, I think is one of the added benefits that are, once again, not talked about per se enough. Because if these athletes learn how to build a personal brand, position themselves on social media, uh, learn how to connect with companies on LinkedIn and position themselves a certain way, that will come with professional benefits, whether that's from a work or internship perspective. But that is a, is a really, really neat benefit of NIL as well. That's just inevitably becoming more and more important. No, I, I love it. Thank you for outlining all those. And I think my main takeaway on that is the stories that aren't talked about so much about the athlete who's not maybe in the most popular American sports and they're not getting that car, but they are getting products, maybe gift cards for food, which every college athlete wants. <laughs> and the opportunity to make some money here and there, that makes a big difference. But also the skills of being able to fine-tune the art of telling your story. And that, as you're talking about, is beneficial way beyond college, way beyond your collegiate athletic career, but into your next step of life. And like that goes along with the brand. So I love it. I love that you're tending to the full human and life beyond sports in addition to sports, which is really cool. What have you seen or heard or experienced directly as the challenges to the collegiate athlete participating in NIL or the teammate of a collegiate athlete who is participating and maybe you're not? Something like that. Yeah, before NIL ever started, people had this perception of what it would do to college athletics and what it would do to the locker room conversations when you had a quarterback making $50,000 a year and maybe a third string a wide receiver making nothing or struggling to land a deal. People were concerned about this. Seven months into it, we haven't heard of any of those stories in terms of creating negative team culture or impacting team culture negatively. So that is certainly not necessarily a challenge that I think really came true, at least not at this point. I also don't think it has done anything to the performance of athletes on the field or that athletes would shift away from focusing on sports or academics. And, and, and sure, we were only technically done with one semester, so it's hard to probably look at enough data points. But nonetheless, we haven't come across anything that would suggest that academic performance or athletic performance has worsened ever since NIL became a thing because athletes now spend all their time on and energy on, on building their brand and making money, right? So those were two challenges that people expected to see happen. And I can't confirm that at all. Quite frankly, I think it does a lot of positives for the space. One challenge, however, that I think we're still needing to overcome is really just kind of the, the encouragement, I guess, the convincing of student-athletes that NIL is for them. We still see a lot of athletes not necessarily thinking that they could utilize these new rules to benefit themselves, right? Like that you have a track and field athlete at a smaller Division I school just isn't really convinced that he or she can use this to make money. And that is a perception that's just false. And I think the media doesn't necessarily help by not talking about those kinds of deals, right? Because when the track athlete now does hear something about NIL, they hear about the power five quarterback getting, you know, a free car or landing this fixed, fixed, six figure deal. And they're like, well, 
this is not me. I don't have 50,000 followers. So yeah, NIL isn't for me. And we just have to kind of, I think, continue to educate and shift the conversation and show those individuals that, yeah, you may never sign a six-figure deal, but that doesn't prevent you from making a couple hundred dollars or thousands of dollars here and there or partnering with local companies or hosting your own camps and giving private lessons and all that good, good stuff. So I think that is still a challenge that we as a, as a community need to continue to address and overcome because once they see a teammate or you know another athlete in their sport do something, that encourages them and inspires them to now give it a try themselves. And the more deals happen, the more Olympic sport athletes and, and some of those athletes that may be hesitant at first uh, secure deals, the more we'll see those athletes kind of embracing those new rule changes as well. So that is probably the biggest challenge, I think. And then as part of that, and not necessarily a different direction, but one of the many reasons they also don't get started is because it's a confusing space. You have so many platforms popping up every other week trying to connect businesses, for instance, with athletes. And those are fantastic resources. But as an athlete that doesn't really know how to get started and, and how to really go about this, it can be pretty overwhelming. So I think making sense of the landscape and really breaking it down to them and, and almost providing a blueprint or a roadmap of this is how you land your first NIL deal, just to kind of get them started, I think is really, really important too. And something that we've been embracing with one of our products, which is an education product, where we just hosted a workshop pretty much where we ran them through step-by-step. Those are the things you can do to land your first NIL deal. And I think that's what the athletes really need is to just a little bit of guidance until they feel comfortable and confident enough to pursue this themselves. Yes, absolutely. Thanks for that. Yeah, I think it can be daunting, especially at college age, to have an income. And it brings up complexities within the household, I can imagine as well, depending on what kind of family they're in, the socioeconomic status, the opportunities that they have, the pressure that they might have to contribute to their family's income. And then when we make it, make the money, what do we do? How do we budget it? The financial like planning 101 or sort of the taxes of it. And like, that's like, oh, and then never mind. I don't want to do it now. It's like all so much. No, I think you're, you're hitting on another really, really good point is this protective education, right? Which was really the, the main focus, especially early on. Hey, understand that if you do sign NIL deals, you have to pay taxes on this, right? And learn how to interpret a contract and, and what you're signing up for. And we've had a few bad examples that, you know, where people pretty much signed their rights away for like 20 bucks or something like this, right? Mm. But that continues to be a big focus too. And as a student athlete, as a 19-year-old that just wants to make money, for instance, right? That isn't the sexy topic that they want to talk about at first, <laughs> right. right? They don't want to talk about taxation. <laughs> they don't want to, so you have to figure out a way to communicate that in an appealing way for them to easily wrap their head around it and then use that knowledge to then, you know, compliantly and safely kind of pursue these opportunities. But it's just something that has to happen. And the athletes that do want to take this seriously, they understand that. Just another thing we need to continue to push, yeah. And is, is there an element of fan word that helps with that part? Yeah. Okay, awesome. As a company, we have three products. Our very first product, we call it FanWord Stories, is more or less a, a content creation service 
for athletic departments to help student athletes tell their stories, right? Then we have Fanward Coach, which is our NIL education product, where we partner with industry experts that cover specific areas, NIL-related areas. And they create online courses or host live webinars that student athletes can access uh, 24-7 and then get educated on those topics where we break down things like financial literacy or you know what to pay attention to in contracts or how to land your first NIL deal or merchandise, podcasting, personal brand development, social media, et cetera, et cetera, where we break those topics down in a really easy way for them to consume. And then we just recently launched our third product called Fainwood Boost, which is more or less a, an all-inclusive NIL directory where athletes have their own profiles and get to list all of the different NIL opportunities they're pursuing in a single spot. So really simplifying it for them to show fans and businesses and other supporters, hey, those are the different ways you can work with me. And then also show those interested parties an easy way to learn about I'm a Nebraska volleyball fan. Let's see what the Nebraska volleyball players are up to and how I can collaborate with them, right? Or let's see which Nebraska athlete sells merchandise or offers coaching lessons. So really trying to aggregate all of these NIL data points in a singular platform and making it easier for everyone to connect and drive, drive business. So long story short, to answer your question, yes, our education product definitely covers those topics that protective education and just like niche NIL education. So yeah. Oh, it's great. Again, the opportunities there, but how do you manage it and do it properly and learn the skill of it? Because you're going to manage a contract from there on for the rest of your life. For every job, there's signing, whether it's higher level sport or at Xerox. I mean, wherever it is you might work or anywhere in between, you have to learn about that and understand it, understand what your signature means and know what you're reading and all of that. Yeah. So you know, I'm going to ask this question because this is my space. Like, how has the mental health of athletes been impacted by possible involvement or lack of involvement in NIL? Yeah. And one of the many reasons we, we love that you're a part of this too is because you do cover an area that I don't think, once again, isn't talked about enough yet. I'm a massive advocate for mental health. And I think, especially with our storytelling product, I got a chance to talk to so many athletes that struggle on that front. And NIL can certainly add a pressure to that if you are kind of the type of personality that likes to compare or, or that feels pressure or feels like I should be able to do this and why can't I land a deal? Depending on who you are, a person can certainly add to your, to your mental health. So I do think that this is once again one of those areas that needs to be address more to help athletes understand, hey, it's okay, right? If you don't land any deals that not diminishing your self-worth and just because a teammate does it doesn't mean, you know, like different situation, different connection, et cetera, et cetera. So I think we need to educate on that for sure too. But I also think though that it does possibly add confidence and have a positive impact on people's mental health too if once again, this is pursued the right way. If you, for instance, land a deal with a company because you were proactive about it and you started building this relationship, that's got to feel incredible. And that's got to be something that should give you confidence, not just in the NIL space, but then obviously also just in life outside of sports and maybe even on the playing field, right? Because you accomplished something. So I think there are certainly positives that, that can, be, can come from NIL. 
But we certainly have to be you know, mindful that there can also be negative consequences and do our part of, of educating athletes about how to approach this the right way and how to interpret it the right way when, once again, a teammate or a friend signs an NIL deal while you don't. But yeah, it's just another one of those areas that just so far hasn't been talked about enough. But again, we're seven months into this, right? So we're still kind of at the super early stages. This isn't going anywhere. And I'm convinced that this will come and become more and more important. And people will realize that athletic departments as well as athletes and coaches. Yes, yes. I think that what you're speaking to is when NIL might put pressure on the athlete to be seen like as less valued because they are not in a big sport or as higher achieving in their position on the team, so to speak, can have negative impact. I think ongoing conversation of like your sport is what you do, not who you are. In this situation, they're looking at what you do. But I think in the end, and correct me if I'm wrong, deals are often signed too because that's a great kid. Yeah, yeah. Because that's a great person right there. Yeah. You're 100% right. Like at first, we saw a lot of companies and we still see that right now, 100%, right? But at first, in particular, a lot of companies wanting to be the first to do something, right? They didn't care as much about finding a good fit for their brand. At least that's kind of what we experienced, right? We saw a lot of companies just, you know, signing with a high profile athlete for the sake of the PR and the eyeballs, right? Which is perfectly fine. But we've also talked to so many athletes already that found just a good match for who they were as a person without having this big audience. And I think, again, I know I talk a lot about education, but it's just basic influencer marketing uh, principles. Like a company, you're a lot more valuable to a company if you have 3,000 followers and 30% of that engage and are part of a community that a company wants to reach than you having 10,000 followers and only 1% of your audience kind of fits into that community. So if you manage to build, again, an audience, a community, a brand in a specific area that you're, for instance, passionate about as a person, right? That is so much more valuable to a company than you being a high-profile athlete, for instance, or your success on the field in general. And I think, once again, it's just something that the athletes need to learn and need to understand. And I think this will come with time. Absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it's almost like, are you going for like the big blitz in glory or are you in this for the long haul kind of thing? Because isn't it the athlete has their own personal brand and that brand needs to be reflected in the brands that they promote and that they are about and are using, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And vice versa. The brand of that product, right, is going to want their athlete to represent the values, beliefs of like what they stand for. So absolutely. Brand fit is for the majority of companies far more important than eyeballs. Obviously, if you bring both together, that's fantastic. But again, if you invest in in building your brand and telling your story, your audience will grow too in that particular niche or community. So you can kind of have the best of both worlds. But yes, the companies. 100%, that's what they care about. They care about an ROI. And more eyeballs usually mean higher cost and higher price point. And if they don't see that same ROI that they might get from somebody with less followers and a higher engagement rate that matches the audience they're trying to reach, that's what they will care about, right? So definitely, yeah. So I'm smiling to myself because you said ROI a couple of times and I can 
proudly say, I know what that means. And if you're going to tell me I'm wrong, I'm going to be like really blushing right now. But it means return on investment, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So if the company wants to spend $10,000 on a student athlete marketing campaign, they want to make sure that their return on this $10,000, if it's financially driven, is at least more than that, right? But could obviously also just, it's not always easy to measure, especially if it's PR related or brand awareness related or something like this. But long story short, that's what they care about when they invest in student athletes. Yeah. Yeah. So what I've learned, I'm going to flex a little bit right now, is that the return on investment doesn't have to be monetary. No, it certainly doesn't have to be. But again, it depends what the goal is of a specific campaign. And if it's sales related, then yes, it is monetary. But if it is awareness related or just showing you know, good faith and being part of a PR piece, then those are there are different key performance indicators, different metrics that matter. But without a doubt, if you're a good fit from a person perspective, that's far more valuable to a brand than number of followers. Right. You probably know someone who's like-minded and like-spirited as you and so on and so on. And so there's a whole nother area of sort of benefit or tapping that company can get into where it's aligned. Absolutely. I mean, if I post about tennis constantly on social media, odds are a big part of my audience are going to be tennis fans or people that have a passion for the sport. So if now a tennis company is considering who they want to work with, my 2,000 followers may be worth more than somebody you know, with 10,000 followers who doesn't really have that connection to that community. So definitely matters. Yeah, for sure. I want to talk about tennis for a little bit, but I want to talk first about the storytelling aspect. I can imagine, and you kind of alluded to it, that when you engage in the storytelling process with a collegiate athlete, sometimes that can be have its ups and downs in the story, that there can be pain points and joys, but that accessing that story and feeling comfortable with how vulnerable you might be in it is important, I think, to managing your own mental health. And that your story doesn't have to be, oh my God, this tragedy, that tragedy, or something that's like so, again, shocking, and that that's what's going to get you the deal, but that it's real and honest and that everyone has a story. Absolutely. Right? Have you found that when you help the collegiate athletes like discover their story or get in touch with it or write it that? That it, it can be difficult sometimes to like move through it and like make sense of it. And sometimes it's the first time they're talking about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we actually always say that what you just said, right? Every athlete has a story. We always like to kind of rephrase that and say every athlete has a thousand stories, right? Or has thousands of stories because literally you do, right? And what we try to tell athletes, whether we work with them directly or just educate them on how to do it themselves. You're absolutely right. It's all really about authenticity. That's really the most important piece when it comes to storytelling. Quality of, let's say, content that you're producing or where you're posting it. Sure, all those things matter too, but nothing is more important than authenticity. I mean, data shows that too. Let's say you play a basketball game and you hit the game-winning shot. Don't wait for professional photo to hit your inbox before you post about it. Go to the locker room and take your cell phone and then make a scrappy video with bad audio. People will eat that up, right? And I think in general, it's just a lot about authenticity and, and being mindful of what your story is. And I think that's what we learn a lot. We've done close to a thousand stories by now. A lot of the individual athletes, they define themselves as athletes. That's it. 
That's all they're really thinking about. I'm a football player. I'm a soccer player. I'm a volleyball player. And then the moment this gets taken away, whether it's through an injury or their career ends, they fall into this hole. And I'm sure you have experienced that a handful of times yourself and in your profession. So it's important that they understand, you know, your sport is a part of you, but it's not what defines you. And helping them kind of understand what other passions they have, what other strengths they have, what else is part of their story. And obviously, as you can imagine, there are some athletes better at identifying that um, right away. And there are some athletes that are just struggling to come up with that. And then you might have to point them in a few directions. But very generally speaking, that the more honest and authentic you can be, your audience will appreciate that. And, and we always tell athletes kind of just put yourself in the shoes of a fan right now. Like you as a fan, you, not you as an athlete, but you as a fan, look at some of your favorite athletes that you're following and ask yourself, why do you follow athlete XYZ? Is it exclusively because of what they're doing on the field? Or is it because kind of the behind the scenes look, for instance, that you're getting or them being vulnerable or them sharing family photos, right? And talking about what that moment means to them. And then just kind of take inspiration from that. I think that's a very easy way to kind of think about it for yourself. But yeah, I mean, doing it is a whole different beast. And the athletes just have to embrace that if they want to build their personal brands, tell your story, do it consistently, do it frequently, and be authentic about it. And that's a very, very good starting point. There's a lot more to it, obviously, but that's a good starting point. And uh, most athletes that we talk to understand that and embrace it. Yeah. Yeah, good. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I mean, really what we're talking about is not an athlete has a story, but an athlete has stories. But the human who happens to be an athlete has stories. Yeah, totally. You're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. I think to reframe it that way, in my experience, athletes want to be seen as humans. I want to be seen as people who put their legs in the same pants that we do, drink the same water that we do. Like it's not, there's not that much of a differentiation. And it's true. Like when I think about who are the athletes I follow and admire and respect, it's doing their sport, but how they do it. And then how they represent themselves off the field of play. What other endeavors are they in? What do they stand for? What's their purpose? How do they talk about it? For you, someone from Germany comes to the United States, plays tennis. Who do you look up to as far as tennis players in Germany, other countries, or the United States? Well, I think I'm probably giving it away here with my background. (laughs) Yeah. I saw that, but they did. Yeah. They don't. So. That's fair with Roger <laughs> Federer. I mean, for a lot of different reasons. And yeah, often you do get to, you look up to an athlete first and foremost because of their athletic performance, right? I've always admired what he was doing on the court. But then, yeah, like I love when athletes just share personal stuff. And there, there are a lot of athletes that do that really, really well. And often when you, when you go to, let's say, an athlete's Instagram account, just look at the last 12 tiles and you get a feel for their story. And we also tell that athletes a lot, like look at your last 12 tiles. That's kind of your digital footprint. That's kind of your story, your digital story. And if that is exclusively tennis, well, that's kind of your identity, right? That's what people think you are a tennis player. But if there's a couple posts from tennis, maybe a post with your dog or with your girlfriend or your boyfriend or with your family or you enjoying food at a restaurant, whatever that might be, you become way more human, right? And 
your audience likes that, whether it's your friends or fans, depending on, you know, who you want to talk about. But it's just something that's, I think, important. So I think a lot of athletes do a good job with that. And some certainly do it better than others. But if you as a student athlete want to kind of bring this back to NIL, I guess, if you do want to land NIL deals, this is a fantastic way to grow your brand and to build your brand and to establish a more powerful online presence, which will come in really, really handy. That's a lot of important information. You know, I hope everyone's taking notes, you know, what Chris is sharing. So I'm going to go back and be able to say like, I know some stuff about Roger Federer. I don't follow him. That's funny. Maybe I will. But I have learned over the years because I love watching tennis from the mental perspective because it's one of those sports that is so cerebral and it's a sport where you, unless you play doubles, are playing by yourself. I mean, you can relate to this more than I can. I've never played it. I played it recreationally. It's fun. I'm actually, our family's into pickleball right now, but that's another story. There we go. (laughs) Close enough. Yeah, but I love watching him because he, let's be real, he's not the most athletic guy in the big way that we want to say like, oh, it makes sense. I mean, he looks like a mild-mannered businessman or like professor, you know? And he's not like, oh my God, that's an athlete right there. It's not that, but he's so... The way that he thinks about the game, the way he prepares, the way he moves, I love watching him. And fun fact, you probably know this, but I'm going to share that I know it, is that he and his wife are both twins. Not entirely, no. (laughs) Okay, wait. Oh, shoot. Okay, wait. Tell me the whole twin thing. They have four kids, two pairs of twins. That's what they have. Yes. What? Roger and his wife also have twins in their family. Okay, so now I'm either embarrassing myself because I don't know about it, but... (laughs) Or we're being authentically, like, hashing it up right now. No, I want to research that. I know they have four kids together and there are two pairs of twins. That's the only twin relationship I know. Yeah, That is just, oh my gosh, in so many ways already. But genetically, to have twins, you have to have twins in your family. And I think I read somewhere... Mm-hmm. I'm going to go back now after we get off this and I'm going to check my facts. Enlighten but, me, please. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'll text you later and tell you because that's what made it even more amazing that t- to have two sets of twins, but then they each have twins in their siblinghood somewhere there too. It was pretty cool. So, and that has nothing to do with tennis. So I thought that that was just like really cool. Yeah. <laughs> just don't ever say in a tennis community that Roger doesn't look very athletic or isn't a good athlete. They will rip you to pieces, Lisa. <laughs> My bad, my bad. No, no, no. But, I don't, it's, it's totally fair. <laughs> let's talk about that. How do you define athleticism oh boy, no. in a way, like, which is not usually the way I've been. So this is me being super ignorant and innocent, and I'll claim it. Like, I see a Rafa Nadal as more athletic than Roger Federer. But please enlighten me and correct me about, like, in the tennis community, what that means. You can probably make an argument for that because, I mean, in tennis, we go through an era that's, I mean, we're blessed. We arguably have the three best players of all time currently active. Roger Federer, Rafael Nadal, and Novak Djokovic. And all of them are freak athletes, right? Like, obviously, what we as tennis players define as athleticism or or an athletic player, it's very different than, than what a football player might define as athletic. But... Yeah, I mean, it's hard to come across. I mean, you have even top guys right now in the world. Number two in the world is a Russian guy. 
you would never describe him as athletic. He's, I think, 6'5 or 6'4. But he, for a tall guy, the way he moves and gets around the court, it's unbelievable. That's true. Rodra in his prime in particular, he was just running around the court. like It just looked so elegantly and so effortless. And that is, to this day, I don't think I've ever seen a player play that, again, effortlessly and, and smooth. Yeah, he never gets tired. I've never seen yeah. him tired. Yeah, I've seen him tired, but only now that he's 40. Yeah, but in his prime in particular, I mean, and again, like I still obviously love watching him, but it's crazy. So yeah, I think it's hard to define, you know, like there was a study not too long ago about the most athletic sports in the world. And it's very, very hard to define that, right? Because you can't really say that sport X or sport Y is more, it's hard to compare. But I think in those rankings, uh, gymnastics, I believe, was number one. Tennis, I believe, was number two. Boxing, I believe, was number three. And I probably got it entirely wrong, but it's one of those conversations I will never get into probably with somebody who has a strong stance on what athleticism is because you can't, it's hard to argue, right? So yeah. Well, I'll fully own my definition is fully subjective. And being a soccer player growing up, it's and someone who watches all athletes. And I love soccer. That's my other thing here. Nice, so, yeah. nice. My Bayern Munich. Yep. Yes, I love it. I love it. Yeah, it's interesting. Those three sports are, even though you play for or perform or compete as a team, except for boxing, are all individual. Mm-hmm. When the pro levels, you know, and higher levels, you're not on a team, but you're part of the country that you represent. And you might train with other people. But no, I think it's fascinating. I mean, this could be a whole nother podcast on how do we define athleticism? How do we define it gender to gender, culture to culture, race to race, and by whose standard? The American standard, which is supposed to be, quote unquote, the best standard and the standard to want to emulate. But that is not the way to see it. To be inclusive is to understand that athleticism can look in so many different ways. And so this has helped me to want to ponder this more. So I appreciate it. Good. I have a question. If you were to go back to Germany and visit an elementary school in the neighborhood that you grew up in, and you were to share a little bit of who you are, your story, and what you do here in the U.S., what would be some main points? Oh, boy. Very good question. I don't think I've been asked this one before. I would certainly not tell them what I do because they wouldn't understand NIL or (laughs) that kind of stuff. But I think what I would probably talk about is just the courage to do something and to kind of start something even. I've always had an entrepreneurial mind my entire life. And it's just something that gives me a lot of joy. And I love kind of going after my own dreams and goals and, you know, kind of building things and just kind of defining my own path almost to a degree. I've always really enjoyed that. And I think it's actually something I'm pretty passionate about is I mentor students that try to get into like entrepreneurship and start their own companies. And and especially in those early stages, because I've made a gazillion mistakes and still do make a lot of mistakes, but I love talking to them about it and kind of helping them overcome some of those early struggles and fears even. And I think we don't necessarily encourage or award entrepreneurship enough. Just today, I was speaking to a class and when people, especially young adults, think of entrepreneurship, they think of Facebook and they think of Instagram and they think of all these big tech giants, multi-billion dollar companies. 
And they don't understand that you having a small retail shop or mom and pop shop or service business making where the business makes a hundred grand a year and you take out fifty thousand or sixty thousand dollars for yourself as a salary, that's entrepreneurship at its finest too. And you get to control kind of how things are going. And I think that is just something like again, we need to educate. So to answer your question, if I were to go back, that's probably a big, big point I would hit home of hey, try something, do something, give it a shot and see where it leads you. Follow your dreams, follow your passions, which is so cliche to say, but I really feel like a lot of people are being pushed into these areas and zones of just doing something for, not saying financial security isn't important, for instance, but they're often driven towards doing things, especially at a young age that I don't think they need to do at that point yet, if it's not fulfilling their passions. Not sure if that made sense, but I I love when young adults just give it a try. I'm passionate about X and Y. Let's see if I can build something in that space if they obviously want to be an entrepreneur. So that's certainly a big point. I think I would also drive home just the, again, courage to explore the world and get out of their own neighborhood and interact with other cultures and other people and listen to other people and just kind of take inspiration from that and have an open mind because personally, I really struggle with some people's narrow-mindedness in general with big topics, with small topics, and just to share, I'm going to use that word ignorance just to other people's opinions. And I think a lot of it stems just from the fact that some people just never really left kind of their small little circle that they grew up in and and continue to live in. And nothing's wrong with that, right? But I just think you kind of miss out on, you know, a lot of things if you just don't kind of broaden your own horizon a little bit. So I think that's an important piece that I would drive home. And then I would probably talk about mental health a little bit and really drive that home because I think we start always worrying about mental health when it's a little bit too late, when people start having issues. So I think like talking about do what you enjoy, don't be always afraid to say no if you don't want to do something, really be mindful of how something makes you feel and prioritize that because I think once again, we never really address it until it's too late. And yeah, is there anything else I would talk about? Those three points I think are are pretty big ones. I'm sure there are many other things I would try to hammer home, but those three things I'm sure I would like to spend some time on, yeah. Yeah, I love it. I appreciate that. I really do. And I think we could have taken each one of those three points and made a whole nother podcast about each one of them. Had a whole nother several hours of conversation, but I'm glad. Thank you for taking the moment to ponder it and and be put off guard a little bit by a a spontaneous question, which I love to ask. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. So I appreciate it. I wish you and FanWord all the best. Uh, It sounds like an amazing company. I can't wait to get more involved and keep learning and hopefully adding value as well. I just appreciate you and appreciate getting to know you as a human being a little bit more today. Lisa, I really appreciate it. I appreciate the nice words. And yeah, definitely... What you're doing is, and I'm not just saying this because we're on this podcast together, I mean it. I think what you're doing is so, so important, uh, not just in the NIL space, just for athletes in general. And yeah, we're really glad that we're partnering on this together and certainly we'll be in touch there soon, but appreciate the nice words and yeah, look forward to the final product you have. Thanks, Chris. No, Christopher. That's more German. Thanks, Christopher. More German. (laughs) My pleasure. Thank you, Lisa.
One of my favorite things about our Sportsypreneur content platform is the opportunity to chat with amazing people in and around the world of sports. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to connect more, hit us up on Instagram at Sportsypreneur. Thank you for listening to this CadSource production, the Sports Epreneur podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide. Sports Epreneur is a content platform, a collaborative team, and a marketing brand that is all about showcasing leaders and difference makers in and around the world of sports. While we create our own content, we also create content with you. This includes collaborative content and exclusive content for your brand. Think podcasts, blogs, social media, and overall content strategy. Our sports content marketing team is specifically niche for those in the sports industry. That includes sports businesses, athletes, managers, coaches, trainers, entrepreneurs, and business leaders in the sports market. The bottom line is we want to help with your sports-related brand, your content marketing, and your story. Connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur or find us online at sportsepreneur.com. Sportsepreneur, the content platform where sports and entrepreneurship collide.